Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been rolled away. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, and she said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciples set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they've laid him. When she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him. I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them, what he had said, and that he had said these things to her. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks, be, to Thanks God. be to God. Amen. Such a holy story. Let's pray in response to the word. Jesus, what a good and glorious story you give us to live by. Uh, the depths of the holiness of this ancient story and the ways that people who were beleaguered and bewildered and battered by life and by systems met with you, met with their creator. We also want to meet with you today, Jesus. We also want to meet with you today, living God. So we pray, come and speak a living word to your children. Come and speak a living word to your people. Spirit of God, speak through the word of God to the people of God. And we all said, Amen. Amen. Well, it is Easter Sunday. You can feel the resurrection vibes. Some churches don't even mess around with that word Easter. They just say, let's just call it what it is. Let's call it Resurrection Sunday. And uh, always throughout history, the church has looked for a way to, to embody 
to embody the power of this resurrection, the glorious celebration. There's so many, so many ways that it's been done. Here in pandemic worship, where for one year I have preached sitting down exclusively, today I am standing up. That's right. I am standing today. We'll see if I can sit down any time before Pentecost because the power of the resurrection is a real thing. And there, there, we need to find ways, find ways to celebrate that in our bodies. Now, years ago, uh, I was going to church with a friend uh, who said, uh, I'm probably not going to quote them exactly, but you know, they, they had grown up in church. They were deeply committed to Jesus, but they were talking about an Easter service. And they said, I'm not excited about Easter. I'm just not into a bunch of people putting on a phony celebration and acting like everything's great. Now, as I said, this is someone who is deeply committed to Jesus, who had grown up in church celebrating resurrection with God's people, and yet uh, they, they, they found the Easter celebrations inauthentic. And I don't think they're the only ones. I think at some point, all of us have looked at the expressions of our faith and found celebration to be inauthentic, even inappropriate. Because over and over again, as Christians, we put on the outward trappings of an Easter celebration, right? We put on the outward trappings of a resurrection celebration. We stand here and we yell that he is risen. We stand here and we yell, a su pueblo victoria. And yet, we haven't dealt adequately with the death, the death, the death that Jesus conquered. We haven't dealt adequately with the reality of evil, the reality of injustice, the reality of sin in our world. And so I want to remind us today something that our souls already know. Easter is not about skipping the unpleasant parts of life and fast-forwarding to a resurrection party. Easter calls us to face the realities of sin and death until Jesus meets with us. This is not something that we manufacture or work ourselves into a tizzy over. Uh, I'm dating myself. Does anyone still know what that word tizzy means? This is a way that we hang on to Jesus. We face the realities of sin and death, and then we wait for God to come with us. Easter calls us to face those realities, realities of betrayal, of desertion, of grief, of accusation, of crucifixion, of disunity and death. The words that our BIPOC sister shared with us so powerfully on Friday night, those are the words that describe the reality of every person in the passage we just read. All of them. Mary, Mary Magdalene, the apostles John and Peter, even Jesus himself. All of those words describe their realities And just as the enemies of Jesus wish to erase him from existence and from memory by crucifying him, trauma has a way of erasing our ability to see God, doesn't it? Injustice attempts to erase the image of God from creation. That's why God hates injustice so much. 
evil inflicted by individuals or systems. Evil in which we ourselves participate has a way of making it seem that holiness, all that is good, all that is sacred, all that is beautiful is gone from planet Earth. Now, the most natural response that I can think of to this type of pain is to manage it. Can I get an amen? To just find a way to deal with it, to get over it if we can. Maybe, maybe we try to succeed our way out of it, right? Anybody? I know some of y'all tried that. I talked to you. We try to succeed our way out of it. We try to find a way to avoid that reality because it is too painful. And the male disciples in this story, Peter and John, they're basically case studies in this kind of pain management, right? They're not the ones at the tomb in the early morning. That's Mary. And even though they respond to Mary's invitation, she goes, hey, something's gone. They've taken my Lord away. Something's happened. Once they've seen the tomb, they act like they've seen enough. They've gotten close enough. Uh, The younger apostle, um, probably John, the author, gets there first. And then he says, that's close enough. That's close enough to all this pain. That's close enough. And Peter gets there next, and he goes farther in than the younger apostle. Maybe he's old enough and wise enough to know he needs to keep looking for more. He goes into the tomb, and then the younger disciples able to follow him. But once they've seen the empty tomb, once they realize that things have changed and they don't know what it means, they say, that's close enough. And even though the text says they saw and believed, it appears to me that once they get the information, they, they return to their homes and they only seem mildly affected by what they've seen. Their behavior doesn't change, right? They, turn, they even turned it into a race. I know, as I was prepping, I, I said, men are so competitive. Ugh. Yeah. Um, I don't know what's going on with those guys. Uh, yes, I do. Yes, I do. They're trying to manage their pain. They're trying to deal with their pain. That word return to their homes, it literally means to step back. They stepped back to their homes. And it is the same word that is used to describe the behavior of the disciples on the night Jesus is arrested in chapter 18. They stepped back from Jesus, is what chapter 18 says. The disciples, the male disciples, the men, go back to the self-preserving pain avoidance of their homes. And I do not blame them. I do not blame them even one little bit. I understand them. I, I just want to say to them, I feel you guys. This is terrible. This hurts so bad, I cannot stand it. Step back to your homes. Step back to the place where you feel in control. Wait till you're ready. That makes sense to me. I do it all the time. And it's not just me. It's not just individuals. It happens systemically too. Have you noticed that? Dominant groups and individuals deny our complicity in violence and injustice. We deny our complicity in systems that wound. Marginalized groups and people, try to, we try to brush it off. We try to act like it didn't hurt. 
We try to act like it's not killing us from the inside out. Or we just try to pretend it didn't happen. Immigrant parents decide not to tell their children their stories because it just hurts us all too badly. And both those who are hurt and those who did the hurting seem to agree on one thing. Let's not talk about it. But Mary shows us something different. She comes to the tomb, the very site of Jesus' brutalized body, the very place where her grief and her trauma take on a physical manifestation in the corpse of Jesus. She goes there before anyone else. She is the one who is willing to stay there in her grief, even when the others have left. Mary learns what all disciples must Mary learns what we can know today. When we are willing to weep, we are able to see. When we are willing to weep, we are able to see. As long as we are numbing ourselves and finding ways to avoid our pain, it is difficult for us to see God. Because if we spend, if I spend my life avoiding the discomfort, and avoiding the pain. What I do unintentionally is I define myself by that pain. Was it James Baldwin who said, nothing can be changed until it is faced? I'm not facing my pain, which means it is controlling me. I'm actually giving authority to sin and to death by refusing to challenge the enemy for the ground that belongs to God. And so today I want us to receive the good news Good news that we need coming out of 2020. Good news that we need as we try to figure out what this moment means. If we engage fully with the grief of our lives. If we allow ourselves to be overcome with sorrow at the injustices of the world. The sadness will not swallow us. The trauma will not define us. The resurrected Jesus The living God will come to us and allow us to see goodness and holiness and beauty and life that we have not imagined yet. Somebody on Zoom say amen. Amen. You already got me in the chat. I appreciate that. Amen. There it is. We're having church today. Mm. Because Mary is willing to weep. She is able to see, and she sees angels, and she sees Jesus. She sees resurrection, and Jesus asks her a question, searches her heart, and Jesus calls her by name, and Jesus gives her a voice and a mission Two different times, Mary's asked, once by the angels and once by Jesus, Woman, why are you weeping? So often we want God or religion or spirituality or the Bible or Jesus himself to give us answers. But what we see over and over again in the Hebrew scriptures, in the life of Jesus, in this passage is how often God asks a question. How often God asks a question. How often God interrupts 
our state of being by asking a question. I recall uh, the, the testimony of one of my seminary professors uh, who was uh, not interested in God. He was living at home in his 20s. His parents had gone to work. He was sitting in the backyard drinking coffee and, and getting high. And he said to himself, it doesn't get any better than this. This is as good as life gets. Great coffee, great weed, what else do I want? And it was as if a voice spoke to him in that moment said, Are you serious? This is what you think life is all about? And that question launched him on a trajectory that led him into re-engaging the life of Jesus, totally transformed the direction of his life. He served as a pastor for years and then as a seminary professor where I met him. God will often ask us a question that calls us to look inside of ourselves, to examine ourselves. God said to the man in the garden, first time in scripture God asked a question in Genesis, where are you? It's not that God doesn't know. It's that holiness invites us to look within ourselves and see what is in there. Jesus invites us to look within ourselves and see what is in there. And so they ask Mary, why are you weeping? What makes you sad? And the Spirit of God still asks us that question today. It's a question that, that uh, I return to almost every day. God, by the Spirit, asks us, why are you weeping? What makes you sad? Are you weeping because of heartbreak and disappointment in intimate relationships? Are you weeping because of frustration and exhaustion with someone you love? Are you weeping because you're missing someone who's not here anymore? Are you weeping with anxiety for your children's well-being or exhaustion from the demands of your life? Are you weeping with loneliness and isolation that seem unbearable? Why are you weeping? Are you weeping because of a wave of anti-Asian hate? Are you weeping, wondering just how many people have to tell a police officer to take his knee off the neck of an unarmed black man before somebody decides maybe we should listen to them? Why are you weeping? Jesus still asks us today, not because he doesn't know, but because he desires to overcome our pain with his life. But that can't happen if we step back to a place of pain avoidance. It happens when we follow Mary's lead and we answer his question, why? Why are you weeping? Now, Mary has no idea that she's engaging Jesus. I don't know what's going on. Maybe she's so overcome with grief that she's just looking at the ground. Maybe Jesus is legit disguised. He's got a funny hat on. I don't know why. She does not recognize him. She's in pain and she cannot see that he is already with her. But as she responds to his searching question, something happens. Jesus says her name. Jesus says her name. The living God says her name. The word that spoke creation into being says her name. Can we grasp the power of that? 
the voice that created the heavens and the earth is now speaking her name. And the voice of Jesus of Nazareth, who had given her life new hope and new meaning, who had honored her, dignified her, blessed her as no one ever had, once again speaks her name. And when Mary hears that voice, it all rushes over her. You can, you can sense this huge realization coming into her. Jesus is not dead. He is alive. He's been speaking to her. He's been standing with her even before she realized it. Even before we realize it, Jesus is standing with us, speaking our names in our doubt, in our confusion, in our pain. If we are willing to weep, we will be able to see that Jesus has come to us that the God of the universe is standing with us. The voice that called creation into being is calling our names. Standing with us, saying Margaret and Dulce and Gus and Susan and Tiana. The voice that called creation into being is calling our names. Is that voice that can cut through all this digitized alienation? Is that voice that can cut through all the consumeristic chaos and the capitalistic pressure and the need to hustle and grind and go twice as hard? Or the desire to throw up our hands and despair? It's that voice that can reach through the systemic injustice, through the personal heartbreak. It's that voice that reaches out to us, calling our names. Do this with me. Put, put a hand on your heart. Put a hand on your heart this morning. Close your eyes. Take a deep breath. The voice that called creation into being is calling your name. Speak your own name over yourself. Imagine Jesus saying your name. You didn't know he was there. But now he's calling your name. Amen. Last thing. Last point. This is uh, only Mary's second appearance in John's story of Jesus. The first one is at the cross. So this is all we know about Mary so far in this story. One, she's a woman from Magdala, which is a town in Galilee, which, as you will recall, is the most disreputable part of the country. She's, from, she's a woman from Magdala who watched Jesus being tortured to death. In other words, she's defined by her marginality and by her trauma, by her status as a colonized person and a non-citizen because of her gender and all the pain in her life. But because she refuses to avoid her pain, because she is willing to weep over her grief, when she hears Jesus asking a question, when she hears him calling her name, the next thing that happens is that she hears him giving her a voice and a mission. She's no longer defined by her trauma. He, he calls her name and then he tells her, go to my brothers and tell them. 
She's no longer defined by her trauma or her pain or her marginality. She becomes what the ancient church calls the apostle to the apostles. The one who is sent to those who are sent. And she begins to live from that declaration, I have seen the Lord. I, who have been defined by my status as a colonized person, as a non-citizen, as a trauma victim, I have seen the Lord. Jesus Christ came to me, and now I come to you with a message and a mission. Her relationship with Jesus begins to heal the pain of her trauma. Her relationship with Jesus begins to liberate her from oppression. And as she and it gives her a voice and she begins to catalyze this process. She starts to tangibly restructure her community by becoming the apostle to the apostles. If you have experienced Jesus healing your pain, go ahead and say amen. Amen. If you can see Jesus bringing liberation, go ahead and say amen. Amen. If you want Jesus to tangibly restructure communities to undo oppression, go ahead and say amen. 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 Because Mary is willing to weep, she is able to see. And Jesus searches her heart. Jesus calls her name. Jesus gives her a voice. You know where I've seen it? I've seen it in you. I've seen it right here in this community. I've seen you be willing to weep. You've been willing to weep over the pain of injustice. You've been willing to weep over the reality of trauma in your lives. You've been willing to weep over the reality of mental illness, of anxiety, of depression, of addiction. You have been willing to weep, church. And because you've been willing to weep, the Spirit of God has met us in this place over and over again. Church, if we, had not been able, if we had not been willing to weep over the sin of patriarchy, we would not have seen the powerful preaching of we just heard in our first ever Women's History Month. Amen? If we had not been able, willing to weep over the pain of patriarchy, we would not have seen what I am hearing people call the most meaningful Good Friday service they've ever been a part of. I mean, so many of you are just sharing and resharing. Mom and Dad sent it to like 50 different friends as we center the voices and experiences of our BIPOC sisters. If we hadn't been willing to weep over the pain of our neighbors who lost a family member in a fire, we would not have seen the outpouring of generosity in this church. Over and over again, as we are willing to weep, we become able to see Jesus alive with us, calling our names to give us a voice and a mission. If we had not been able to weep over the need of this community for more energy and more structure, 
we would not have called in Nate Salinas and Andrea Emerson to pastor us. And this may seem like a surfacey thing, but I promise you it's significant. We've been rebuilding our church website. We've, uh, we've invested in the work of a, uh, an Asian American couple who's done some beautiful graphic design for us. You're going to see our new logo when we celebrate communion in just a few moments. Because we were willing to weep, we are seeing Jesus in whole new ways. And as we have said yes to acknowledging the pain in our lives and the pain in the world, he has called our names. He has given us a voice. He's given us a mission. So how is Jesus meeting with you today? How is Jesus meeting with you today? Is he searching your heart with a question? Asking you to understand what's inside yourself? Is he calling you by name? Reminding you that you are not unknown and you are not alone? Is he giving you a voice? Giving you a testimony? Sending you on a mission to declare how God has met with you? How is God meeting with you today? The good news of Easter is that we don't have to be afraid to weep. We don't have to avoid our pain or the pain of the world. Because if we say yes to the pain, we will not be overcome. We will not be overcome. We will see Jesus. We will hear him calling our names. We will hear him giving us a voice. Let's pray together. Hallelujah, good and glorious God, resurrected Savior, living Christ, you who are victorious over sin and death, thank you this morning that we can face the pain of the world unafraid because you yourself have received all that pain and conquered it. And today you lead us in a new way, your spirit gives us new life to face the pain of the world with the hope of your resurrection. Spirit of God, move over us, speak to us, meet us in all the ways that we need to be met. You are the God who sees us. You are the God who has conquered sin and death. And we give you glory. Amen and amen.